Welcome to PodClass. PodClass is a podcast from the Center for Visual Culture and Media Studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. In PodClass, I play a podcast that a student has submitted to my class, and uh, you get to reap the benefits of listening to it. In this episode, you'll hear Macy Sepp's The Statue's Quo. Hey there, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Macy Sepp, and you're listening to Design for Dummies. Many of those people were there to protest the taking down of the statue of Robert E. Lee. So, this week it's Robert E. Lee. I noticed that Stonewall Jackson's coming down. I wonder, is it George Washington next week? And is it Thomas Jefferson the week after? You know, you, all, you really do have to ask yourself, where does it stop? A couple of months ago, stories about the removal of several major controversial statues were plastered all over the news. For weeks, every headline had something to say about the protests and the threats and the deaths that came as a result of these civil acts of disobedience, all because of these random things made out of brass and stone. This sound bit you're hearing is from a protest in Durham, North Carolina, in front of the old county courthouse. This was recorded during the removal of a Confederate soldier's monument back in mid-August. I remember first hearing about the violent events in Charlottesville right after returning from a 10-day backpacking trip where I had no internet, no clue what was going on in the world, and minimal interaction with anyone who did. Not only do I remember being shocked when I finally heard the news, but I also remember asking, how could people respond so terribly to the removal of a statue, a statue that for decades caused so much pain and harm to an entire community? Today, I want to zoom out a little bit from that question and talk about statues themselves, these things that tower high above us in the middle of our streets, in our parks, on the side of buildings, in front of our schools, even in our backyards, and that signify our shared histories and experiences, both good and bad. Why are they pertinent to design? What is their purpose? And how permanent are they actually? In his book, The Shape of Things, media critic and philosopher Willem Flusser introduces the unique idea that design is meant to be cunning. He believes that design creates space for new culture, a culture that is, quote, aware of the fact that it is deceptive, end quote. Merging art with technology through a subtle and not-so-subtle means of deception is a skill that all designers acquire and implement in their work on a regular basis. So where do statues fit into the equation? At first, I questioned whether they could even be categorized as a form of design. They seemed to purely be a form of art and not technology, with no functional purpose. I thought about this for a while, did some research, and somehow I ended up on a Mental Floss article about gargoyles. As you can imagine, gargoyles have been around for centuries. They were initially used as decorative water spouts on the roofs of churches and cathedrals as a means of diverting rainwater away from the sides of buildings in order to preserve them. As for their notorious creepy and haunting appearance, gargoyles were meant to scare parishioners and warn them of terrors of hell. This drew people from the evils of the outside world and into the sanctuary of the church. At the same time, they were also used to welcome pagans into the church, seeing as they resembled the images that were worshipped amongst pagan tribes. In this sense, gargoyles were specifically created to manipulate the world around them. Not only did they alter the laws of nature, but they also had an influence over people's actions and behaviors. William Astor of the HuffPost says this, quote, Statues, of course, are just that, inanimate objects, places for pigeons to poop. It's we who invest them with meaning. Most people, I think, take little notice of statues and monuments until they become controversial, after which everyone has an opinion. For me, statues and monuments are a stimulus for reflection, as well as education. 
Who is that guy on a horse? Why is he being honored? And what does that decision tell us about who we were and are as people? As a people, we choose certain historical figures as worthy of being sculpted in stone or cast in bronze. We choose our heroes, and our choices are just that, choices. They reflect certain values, priorities, motives, and feelings. And since our values, motives, and our sense of what is good and bad, right and wrong, change over time, so too can our statues and memorials change, if that is the will of the people in a democracy that enshrines freedom of choice. End quote. Perhaps statues no longer serve that same practical purpose, but what if their purpose is simply for pleasure or reflection? Is that a good enough reason to keep making them? I began thinking about how this all fit in with deceit by looking to history. Sculptures began as ways of creating lifelike reimaginings of people in order to preserve and celebrate their existence. It was through sculptures that people could be immortalized. Sort of. By depicting someone frozen in space at a particular moment in time, someone who was changing or already gone, statues became a superior form of replicas or replacements of people meant to be praised and worshipped. Their spiritual and religious purposes are what eventually led to iconoclasm and to their destruction. So much of how art and design are perceived is dependent on the creator and the audience. The designer's intention does not always align with the audience's expectations. The infamous statue of David, for example, was meant to stand high above the city of Florence along with several other Old Testament heroes. This TED-Ed video explains how the statue's creators realized that such a location actually contradicted the purpose of the statue. Though the statue itself had not been altered, its placement changed nearly every aspect of it, from a religious to a political significance. The original statue was moved in 1873 to the Galleria dell'Accademia, where it remains today. In the orderly, quiet environment of the museum, alongside numerous half-finished Michelangelo sculptures, overt religious and political interpretations fall away, giving way to detached contemplation of Michelangelo's artistic and technical skill. Not only does context change the meaning and interpretation of an artwork throughout its history, sometimes it can make that history resurface in the most unexpected ways. How much freedom do we allow the artist, the creator, the designer to interpret for themselves? In his podcast titled Revisionist History, Malcolm Gladwell featured a story about a statue called the Foot Soldier located in Birmingham, Alabama. I've always loved statues. I find them moving. don't know why. Maybe it's because they're a representation of something that we have chosen to take seriously, to memorialize in a permanent form. With a statue, you're saying to the future, this is what I want you to remember about my generation. The statue I came to see is at one end of Kelly Ingram Park. It's of a police officer, big guy, menacing, heavy pair of sunglasses. He is a dog on a leash, a big German shepherd, and the dog is lunging. Huge fangs bared at a young black boy who's leaning back, hands to his sides, almost like he's sacrificing himself. It's called Foot Soldier. It looks simple, but that statue is not what you think. Mac made Leo into a wolf and blinded Middleton and shrank Walter Gadsden until he was tiny and helpless because he was telling a story about Birmingham. That's what history is. Each side writes their own story, and the winner's story is the one we call the truth. You don't think white people told their share of whoppers over the years in the South? You don't think that there's a statue in a southern town somewhere of a champion of the Confederacy that makes a hero of someone who is actually a villain? White people got to do that in the South for centuries. 
Foot soldier is just what happens when the people on the bottom finally get the power to tell the story their way. It was a long time coming. Can altered meaning or the distortion of reality be beneficial? Later on in his book, Willem Flusser also argues that objects are meant to help us avoid and overcome obstacles. But how do statues play into that? Don't they make us stop and think and reflect? Are they obstacles that we desire and are proud of, or ones that we don't even need? In his essay titled, What is Designing?, John Chris Jones states that good design requires the ability to predict the future correctly and effectively, resolving a problem. But what problem are statues trying to resolve? A moral dilemma? Regardless, he says that, quote, the design process must become more public so that everyone who is affected by design decisions can foresee what can be done and can influence the choices that are made, end quote. How much are people a part of the process? For Audrey Munson, it may have been too much. How much foresight was put into her personal well-being before she was declared Miss Manhattan for all the world to see? This comes from a story by Roman Mars on his podcast, 99% Invisible. Over 30 statues at the Met are made in her likeness, and she adorns dozens of memorials and bridges and regal buildings all over New York City. And although Audrey Munson's body has been immortalized in iron and marble, her name is mostly forgotten. But she was a prolific writer and penned a series of articles telling her life in her own words. I'm wondering if many of my readers have not stood before a masterpiece of lovely sculpture or a remarkable painting of a young girl and asked themselves the question, where is she now, this model who was so beautiful? What has been her reward? Is she happy and prosperous or is she sad and forlorn, her beauty gone, leaving only memories in the wake? Despite their usual association with permanence and stability and preservation, statues have more recently been known for their destruction and teardown. These acts of protest almost seems more symbolic than the actual statue. Many of us, including myself, were so surprised by the dismantling of statues, but in reality, it is deeply woven throughout our nation's history. J.C. Fortin from the New York Times says that, quote, these acts of destruction can function as propaganda. What else could signify a smashing victory or a new and brilliant future, so succinctly as the likeness of a vanquished leader smashed to rubble on the ground? But propaganda built around individuals can be misleading. Making sculptures into public monuments conveys the idea that history is made by individuals. We have a very individualized sense of personal agency and activism today, end quote. In a recent talk about statutes and statues, Rabbi Noah Arno made the distinction between placing statues in public spaces and placing them in museums. He believes it is the difference between memorializing and remembering something. The statues that are wrongfully memorialized are what Noah called a seductive threat and a temptation to accept what is evil as fair and honorable and truthful. So what is our solution, if there even is one? You see, public spaces are hardly ever as neutral as they may seem. This overt presence of white colonial and Africana nationalist men not only echoes a social, gender, and racial divide, but it also continues to affect the way that women, and the way particularly black women, see themselves in relation to dominant male figures in public spaces. This is Seth Mbile Mazane from the TED stage with her own solution. As part of a year-long public holiday series, I use performance art as a form of social commentary to draw people's attention to certain issues, as well as addressing the absence of the black female body in memorialized public spaces. 
especially on public holidays. For this reason, among others, I don't believe that we need statues. The preservation of history and the act of remembering can be achieved in more memorable and effective ways. You've been listening to PodClass, a podcast from the Center for Visual Culture and Media Studies at Greenville University. You can find more of our podcasts at soundcloud.com slash medialabgu.